created live on Fireside. Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or my guests questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. Today's guest is Andrea Mack. Andrea is a certified life coach and founder and CEO of Get Your Life Back with Andrea Mack, specializing in trauma and recovery. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Loralee. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, this is definitely a conversation I'm, I'm, I'm all too familiar with, unfortunately. Um, but I, I do want to start with your story. Um, you are a sexual abuse survivor. Could you share your personal experience and, and how you actually found your purpose as a life coach? Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a survivor. I am not a victim. I have reached survivorhood status. And, you know, for me, um, my sexual trauma, my sexual abuse happened within my family as well as without. Um, I was sexually assaulted as a little girl. I was about eight when it started. And, you know, I didn't really know what was happening. I just knew that I was uncomfortable and I knew that it wasn't anything that I would be able to share. And it affected me in so many ways. I mean, I'm, I'm 53 years old and it's been about 10 or 15 years and I'm able to say that I'm a survivor. I've done a lot of work uh, to get to this place. And I was sexually assaulted within my family by two members, uh, mm. both of them, both of them male, both of them very close in relation. And when I say close in relation, I don't mean um, a cousin. I mean closer than a cousin. Uh, cousin. And, uh, you know, it was one of the, it was two of those things that I was able to, my body, my brain, repress those memories, repress one of the memories for a very, very, very long time. And the other memory I suppressed on my own. And it didn't come out until I was in a drunken stupor and I was having an argument and I blurted it out. And I said, you know, so-and-so, you know, he hurt me when I was a little girl. He touched me when I was a little girl. And the person that I was talking to was a member of my family and they were mortified at first and then did not believe me. One, because mm. I was, I was drunk. Right. And two, because it was a close, close relation of theirs. And so they were, they were horrified and, you know, they just said, you're lying, you're drunk, you'd say anything to hurt me. And I never brought it up again. You know, I said, you know what? I said it, I meant it. I knew that it was true. Um, and then the other assault, I didn't remember for 
my goodness gracious, I lived in Montauk at the time, so I was less than, I was close to 30, and I remember having a nightmare and waking up, and I was yelling, and I was screaming, and I was hitting the person that I was living with, and it was as if it were happening at that very moment. Wow. And I can tell you that from that moment on, my drinking and my drug use went from casual to maybe one too many to never being casual again until I reached the point of recovery. So, I mean, that is, that is my story. Two members of my family, two very close members of my family sexually assaulted me when I was a very little girl, younger than 10 years old. And I'm now 53. And it affected me in every aspect of my life. It affected how I looked at men. It affected me how I looked at myself. I never felt Mm -hmm. as if I were, I always felt as if I were dirty, as if I just wasn't enough. I felt as if there was something missing from me. You know, these two assaults, and they, they, weren't, um, they weren't isolated incidents. Uh, one was an isolated incident, and one was continuous for a year. And I felt as if something had been taken from me. So I was walking around with this gaping hole that I was trying to fill with shopping and work and education and friendships and eventually you know finding uh, booze and finding drugs and just taking it to a level where you know what I just I didn't want to think about it and the only way that I couldn't think about it was to be numb for a good portion of my life and that's how I dealt with it well not dealt with it but that's how I came to terms with what had happened to me. I just, I I did not want to be conscious. I didn't Mm. want to, there wasn't anywhere that I could go to escape the reality of what had happened. And so as long as I was drunk or as long as I was using drugs and I was in a completely different state, I didn't care because when I was drinking, when I was using, there was such a level of self-hatred that I was actually I was okay with that. I had reached my peak of, okay, I'm okay here. I'm okay in this dirty bar. I'm okay with this stranger that has taken me home. I'm okay with, I mean, my addiction has taken me all over the place. I, I don't want to jump ahead, but that is my that is my story in terms of sexual trauma and abuse. Yeah. I What a lot of people don't understand, I feel, is that these are symptoms, the, the drug, drug abuse, the promiscuity. Mm-hmm. Um, these are textbook symptoms of PTSD, of sexual trauma. And honestly, it took me forever to, um, to understand that. But you, you use these coping mechanism, mechanisms, maladaptive mm-hmm. ke- mechanisms to kind of numb you from and from what had happened, but because you're, you know, taking drugs or you're promiscuous, when you do say something, people are like, mm, but that's, but I don't believe you, you know, you, you, you've been doing drugs, you do this, you know, 
you sh- you you could be lying because you've already you're already doing all of these things that right. would quote unquote consider you a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took a lot for me to understand. I was just like, oh yeah, you know, people called me a slut or people mm-hmm. called me all these names or you know, you were already a bad person. So how should I, why should I believe you? Um, And I think people need to start understanding that these are symptoms of sexual trauma. So if you are doing, if you are having, if you have a friend who has, who are, who's dealing with this and, and who's drinking too much, taking drugs more than they should, I mean, and, 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 being going out and finding love in all the wrong places i think that's a time to say to ask what what's going on yeah they're definitely signals definitely signals of what's going on because this is not you know no one wakes up and says oh i think i'm going to become an alcoholic oh i think i'm going to become a drug addict oh i think i'm going to be you know sexually promiscuous you know oh i think i'm going to put myself in dangerous situations and go home with strangers and you know, go to after hour bars and find myself in after hour clubs. Nobody wakes up with that intention until you're knee deep in it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then once you're knee deep in it, I'll keep it on myself. Once I was knee deep in it, that was my goal. My goal was to drink as much as I could, use as much as I could, do whatever it is I needed to do to get the next drink, to get the next drug. I had, there was no shame in anything that I did. And at this stage in the game with um, more than 17 years um, sober from drugs and alcohol, I, I don't have any shame. You know, that wow. those are the things that I did to to cope and to get through each and every day with, you know, with the hopes of not waking up. And I don't have any shame today. That That was a part of my life. I'm not that person anymore. I don't do those things anymore. And I use those parts of my life, the the sexual abuse, the alcoholism, the drug addiction, the promiscuity, the manipulation, the lying, the stealing, all of it. I use all of that to help and heal anyone else that needs that, that needs to know it does get better. It can really suck before it gets better, (laughs) right? Because, you know, some of the things that I did and continue to do to remain on the path and the journey of wellness and healing is to talk about it. I mean, it's April 28th, 2022. I've probably done 60, 70 podcast web shows in the past 18 months. And so if anyone will listen, I will talk. Well, I applaud you. I applaud you for your sobriety. I applaud you for your healing because that's not easy. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Very, very hard. But not, um, you know, I got to a point where there was a sliver of me that wanted to live just a little bit more than I wanted to die. Mm -hmm. Wasn't much. It absolutely positively was not much. But with all of the drinking and all of the drugs and all of the dangerous situations, uh, waking up in God knows whose house or hotel or state or car for that matter, you know, falling asleep uh, in a bar. And I was friends with bartenders that knew that I was homeless. And some of them would take me home for a couple of days and some of them would lock me in the bar overnight and I would sleep there until they came in the next day. I mean, 
the story runs the gamut, you know? And I finally reached a point where I was like, okay, maybe I'm not dying for a reason. And let's see if maybe we can do something different, you know? And I finally made a phone call and I wound up in many facilities, hospitals, detoxes, rehabs, therapeutic communities, halfway houses, you name it, I've been there, uh, New York, New Jersey, Long Island. And uh, yeah, something stuck, something stuck about 17 and a half years ago. And it seems to be sticking every day, a day at a time. Yeah. You, you know, we talk about close family members who Mm -hmm. abuse us. Um, I was sexually abused by my father. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really hard because I, you, you look at this person, they're supposed, they're your family, that you're supposed to be your protector. They're supposed to be the ones who, you know, you look to, and then they betray you like that. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy how our minds go, well, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. And then you project that, that on every other person. And it's, it's mind blowing, but I'm, I'm curious, how did you navigate your, you said this was a close family member. How did you get navigate family gatherings? And after you said something, what, what was, what was, what happened there with that person? Well, with one family member, uh, it was an isolated incident and I never saw them. Uh, I never saw them again. And with the other family member who is still alive, because I said it that one time in a drunken state and I wasn't believed, it was never brought up again. And so I would, you know, family reunions or, you know, a major holiday because we were now in two different states. Um, I would really just keep my distance or put on the smiley face for the big family, put on the, you know, smiley face for the big family picture because after being abused, you're able to fake it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I could put on the smile. I could act as if, you know, grab something to drink and, and I was absolutely fine. Uh, what got really tricky was when I had my son, my beautiful Elijah, and, uh, I had to keep him away from this person Mm -hmm. and I would do and will do anything in my power to keep my son safe at any cost. He's 22 now. And, um, but at the time I remember him being on uh, vacation as a very young boy. Uh, and he was in the presence of this person. And I said, I said, what are you doing? I said, I told you, I didn't want my son anywhere near him. And she said, Oh, he's fine. He's with me. I said, you have five minutes to leave the house and do not bring my son in his presence again, or I'm flying down and I'm bringing my son home. These are my wishes. This is my son. Whether you want to believe what happened doesn't matter. This is my son. And, and as a, as a child, as a minor, what I say goes, not anybody else, him and his father. Myself and his father have the last word on everything. 
And so I think when I said that, it became very clear that whether I was drunk or not, when I said it, it was true. Mm. It was true. And so the navigation was easy because my son was never um, in this person's presence without me after that. And I very rarely saw the person because I live on the East Coast and this person lives in the South. So Mm. it wasn't one of those things where, you know, we saw each other enough. And, you know, as time went on, I remember family members saying to me, oh, what happened between the two of you? You were so close growing up because we're close in age. And Mm -hmm. I says, you know, you'll have to ask him, you know, because I wasn't at that place where I was ready to say it out loud. And I don't know how it became apparent, but I do know that there are members of my family that do know that something very, very wrong happened for me to be so adamant about where I stand in having communications with this person, being in this person's presence, keeping my, keeping my son, you know, at a safe distance, you know, I mean, people are not stupid. You can live in denial. You can act as if you can tell yourself anything you want to, but the truth is the truth. And, and I stand on the truth. Have you confronted this person? No, that isn't necessary for me. Mm -hmm. That isn't necessary for me for a number of reasons. One, because I'm healed and I'm whole. And that wasn't part of my process. I confronted um, this person in therapy through writing, a lot of writing. I Mm. wrote him letter upon letter upon letter, explaining to him how I felt when I was little, what he did, um, and what he did, how it played into my life as a teenager, as a young adult, as an addict, as an alcoholic, you know, as a person jumping from one toxic relationship to another, and watching this person live a drug-addled, unfulfilled, twice divorced life, the universe has confronted him enough. Mm. And that's enough for me. Wow. So it did, it took you many years to confront this. And I think this is how it is for a lot of people, right? They, they don't want to talk about their trauma, especially sexual trauma. There's a lot of shame that people carry with that. It, It, and it's it's awful that it, it takes so long for someone to speak up. I'm I'm hoping with you know the work you do, the podcasts, you know everyone speaking up and talking about their story, that that people are ready to, you know, at an earlier time say, okay, this is not okay. Because for me, it was like, oh, this is shameful. And, you know, when I was younger, there was an, an, the internet and I didn't think anything, this happened to anyone else but me. Um, right. But it, it's, it's, it's hard um, to think like, oh my gosh, that there are a lot of people out there who's just living with this and just repressing these, these memories. How did you finally decide like enough's enough? I need to get help. And how did you find that help? 
Well, the help for me came when I got sober. Um, I, I don't believe that had I not gotten sober, I would still be living a life filled with shame and promiscuity. But by getting sober, my mind and my body and my spirit were able to get clear. And that's when I realized that I was not living my best life, that I was not living up to all the potential that, you know, that I could. And that there was so, I knew that I could not have gone through all of this just so I could say I went through all of this. Mm, there had yeah. to be more to it, right? I mean, there has to be more to waking up for me. There had to be more to waking up in the morning and saying, okay, I'm sober again. Okay, <laughs> I'm healed. Okay, I'm not, you know, sleeping with strangers. Okay, I'm not angry. Okay, that song doesn't trigger me. There, ha- For me, there had to be more. And so when I decided to get sober, when I, well, I didn't decide to get sober. I decided not to die. I didn't know that I, I didn't know that that meant getting sober. I decided, okay, <laughs> you know, I've, I've drank enough. I've smoked enough. I've used enough. Clearly I'm not going to die. God must have a plan for me. Let's try and do something different. And so mm-hmm. I was hospitalized for a very, very long time. And I mean, this time around, there were, there were many attempts at, at detox and rehabs and, you know, pretty places on the beach and, um, things like that. But when I really, really, really said, okay, balls to the wall, we've got to do something, uh, different. I went into a hospital in New Jersey and I was there for a really long time. Uh, almost 90 days. I was in the hospital for so long that I was able to go to my mother's with my son on weekend pass. That's how long I was hospitalized for. And because there were some mental illness aspects. I mean, and I think it's important to say that, you know, with drug addiction comes mental illness because, Mm -hmm. you know, you can be depressed or bipolar and, not being diagnosed or misdiagnosed, we begin to self-medicate because we're like, well, what's going on here? Why am I up for 20 hours? Why am I, um, you know, why am I behaving this way? Why can I not get out of bed? Why can I not go to work? Why can I not hold a job? Why can I not function, you know, like quote unquote, the average person does, you know? And Mm -hmm. why does it take so much more for me to feel happy? Why do I have to have six drinks when my girlfriend can have two, right? Why can other people do a couple of lines of Coke and on the weekend, you know, and I need the entire bag every day that ends in why, why is that? And so once I, you know, went into the hospital, got on some medication, leveled my, leveled my brain out. Um, and I'm no longer on medication. Thankfully I have nothing against medication. It's just not a part of my day to day at this point, it was something that I needed to level out and be able to really figure out what was going on with me. And then when I got sober, it wasn't until maybe two or three years uh, sober that I decided to get some help in terms of the sexual trauma. I mean, where I went to get sober, beautiful facility, right? Wonderful people, not equipped to deal with the level of sexual trauma that I had dealt with, you know, two family members and 
you know, two people in junior high school, two date rapes, you know, mm. and then, you know, there was a fondling issue in youth group by a girl. And then just, you know, and then there was, I think I was 12 or 13, you know, and there was like a 40 year old man at a barbecue. I mean, there was a whole host of things that had happened. And these people at the facility, they weren't equipped for that. And thankfully they knew they weren't equipped for that. So they told Mm me upon exiting, you know, we strongly encourage you to, you know, seek counseling for the sexual trauma. And I did. And so I would say at about, I have more than 17 years now, I would say at about 12 or 13 years. Now, by now, I'm, I'm mentoring women like crazy, you know, um, helping them get sober, helping them to maintain sobriety, you know, talking about um, everything under the sun, you know, broken marriages and loss of children and custody and loss of jobs and renewing of, you know, certain things and sexual trauma and, and get it, walking them through based on how I was helped and healed that I decided that I wanted to do this full-time and professionally. And how would I do that? And at that time, life coaching was just on the scene, just making the scene. And I said, well, that sounds like what I'm doing already. So why don't I just do that? And I remember looking into it and researching it. And I remember saying to myself, if I'm going to do this, I have to get certified. You don't have to be certified to be a life coach. But for me, I had to be certified. I needed to know the ins and the outs of what I was getting into, what I was bringing other people into. And I needed to be held accountable. You know, um, I can't write a book about my last three clients and make $10 million without getting in trouble, right? I'm a certified life coach. I have the board of ethics to answer to if a client picks up a book and says, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> this sounds <laughs> eerily familiar, you know? And so, <laughs> and, and so for me, I needed that. And it, it lends such credibility and an added layer of protection and integrity for my clients to know, yeah. She's, she's, she's documented. She's got the paperwork and we feel safe and we feel secure with her. So yeah, I decided to get certified and now I am not only am I a certified, uh, life coach, but I'm finishing my degree. I'm back in school. Um, getting a, I'm doing an accelerated program, bachelor's and master's in psychology and you know, without a doubt, I'll go for my doctorate because, well, Dr. Andrea Max sounds pretty good to me. I think. <laughs> well, congratulations. That is, that is incredible. Thank um, you. I was trying to do the math. Your son is 22. You've uh-huh. been sober 17 years. So mm-hmm. you got the help after you had your child. What happened was I was already an alcoholic and an addict and I was sober and I relapsed. So when I got married and my son was born, I had uh, three years already. My my son was actually born <laughs> on one of my one of my many sober dates, January tenth, two thousand, and I relapsed about three years after that. 
So yeah, there's the math. Mm, yes. The math. It, it, it is hard having um, children when you're experiencing trauma mm-hmm. um, or when you have experienced trauma. Um, mm-hmm. I went into, I went into um, residential treatment when my son was less than two and my daughter was um, four, mm-hmm. almost four, well, almost five, maybe. Uh, I can't do the math clearly. Right. I can't I do the you. math either. <laughs> I really um, but, you know, I, I think I was triggered by, by all of the things that were, you know, I, I, you know, I pretended that everything was okay, um, that there was nothing wrong for the first several years of my daughter's life um, right. around my father. Um, but then something started just triggering. I, it was really um, the holidays, um, the holidays before I went into treatment, where I was just, it, severely triggered. My husband was just like, what is going on? I was like, you know, I hate being here. And he's just like, yeah, but it's something's way more off. And like, right. I, I didn't feel comfortable leaving my daughter alone um, with my parents, even though my mom was there. Did I think anything would happen? I don't know, but I was still triggered. Right. I was still like, oh, am I like, am I this horrible mom for pretending this didn't happen? Then letting my daughter just and my son just be around this this man. Mm-hmm. Um, it was awful. It was awful. And um, I mean, it was just a couple months later when, you know, I tried to take my own life and then which right. kind of propelled me, you know, to go into treatment. And, you know, here I am. Um, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. But do you ever, um, were that, what was, what was it? Like, what, what did you, did you, how did you decide, you know, once you relapsed, you had a son, when did you, where was this moment where you said, okay, I need to go, I need to go back? Right. So I relapsed and I relapsed for about 36 hours not even, um, not even. And I said, Nope, not going to do this. I I knew, I knew what addiction looked like. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew that I had this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful child and I would not leave him the legacy of a little black suit at a funeral. That's all I could say. I will not leave my son the legacy of a little black suit. And I immediately made a phone call and I called his father at the time, my husband. And I said to him, very, very simply, I'm sick again and I need to go away. And he said, okay, come home and we'll figure it out. I was at a girlfriend's house and I went home. And he had fabulous insurance. And I wound up at one of the most beautiful programs in Florida. And I was there for a while. And I got into relationships, right? Because, well, that's, that's, what, that's what I did, right? Mm-hmm. I thought I wanted to get sober. Um, and then... You know, between the sun and the music and the beach and the groups, I was like, oh my goodness, well, maybe I can have, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm speaking honestly here, right? The no, truth yeah, free- I mean. The truth will set you free all day long. And I was actually 
removed. <laughs> I was asked to leave that facility. They were like, yeah, you are so disruptive. You cannot stay here. But because of HIPAA, they couldn't tell my husband why. They just had to say she needs more than we can give her. Mm. So they transferred me to another facility. And while I was waiting for the van to take me to the other facility, I walked across the street to buy a pack of cigarettes and I found a bag of Coke in the middle of the street. And I said, well, who's having a better day than I am? I mean, (laughs) who finds a bag of Coke while they're in treatment? Who changes their sober date in treatment? Well, it happens all the time. I'm not unique and I'm not special. Um, And so, but at the next facility is where I really, really, really got honest. I got honest about the bag of Coke. I got, I mean, they had some fabulous therapists there that were very well skilled in what I needed. And, uh, and yeah, you know, here I am. And uh, it, I remember, I remember coming home and my son, my beautiful son, would sit in the bathroom with me when I took a shower because he had not the normal separation anxiety that a toddler would have, right? I was gone for, uh, I was gone for 90 days. You know, he didn't have the normal separation anxiety. And so he would sit in the bathroom when I would take a shower. And if I would go out, you know, to a meeting or whatever, he, my husband would tell me, he said, he's been at the front door since you left, Mm. you know? And, uh, and my son grew up with me, um, getting sober, you know, he's the first person on October 4th to call or send me a text. Mom, I'm so, so, so proud of you, Mm. you know, and what else is there? Right. Like I didn't have to get certified. I mean, that, that in and of itself is enough. Right. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you know, I didn't get sober and I didn't get help and I didn't get healed for myself. I, I know that uh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I do it. Um, it. It's interesting. Your story is not unique. I, you know, even in when I was mm-hmm. in, I've been to two different, resi- um, one residential treatment center and then one partial hospitalization program. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, if, if people aren't in that place, things happen. I mean, it can yes. be a very dysfunctional, dysfunctional place. Um, and I saw it firsthand. Um, but I, you know, it's really, it's really amazing that you really did want to heal and really did want to get the help um, because it does take a lot of courage. Um, as far as your support system, you know, you talked about your mother. And I was, I'm wondering, what is your relationship with your mother and how much of what has happened to you does she know or has accepted? So today, today is my mother's birthday. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> and uh, it's also my grandmother's birthday, but my grandmother is, uh, she's not with us anymore. She's, uh, she's making pancakes in heaven is what I tell mm. people. And so my mom, we've done a lot of work, uh, not necessarily together. I've done work on myself. She's done work on herself. And because of the extensive work that I've done on myself, I'm better for it. 
and our relationship is better for it. And what does my mother know? My mother knows that one person, not the person that's deceased, knows that one person um, in our family uh, abused me. Whether she will ever say it out loud, mm, probably not. But I can tell by the way she interacts with this person that it has become very true for her. Uh, mm. In terms of my sobriety, next to my, after my son, she's my biggest supporter. I mean, my oh. son thinks I hung the moon. Of course, at 22, mm. he, he knows for sure that I didn't. But he is, I remember when I told him I was going back to school he was like, oh my gosh, mom, that is so dope. And I was like, I know, right? Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. And, um, but back to my mom, she, my mother was the one that didn't sleep at night, right? She was waiting for that phone call that your child is dead, that we found someone that looks like your daughter and you're going to have to, you know, um, come identify mm. her. My mother had to make some really, really, really hard decisions, Right. Um, she had to decide that if you wanted to drink and if you wanted to use and if you wanted to live this lifestyle, you can absolutely do that. You cannot do that here, meaning her house, pack what you can carry and go. It was a very rainy Halloween when she said those words and I packed what I could carry and I went and, you know, she's visited me in rehab and detox and rehab and detox and, and, uh, you know, she's, she's done it with me, you know? And for a long time, I could not be in her house without her for a long time. If, if I was, if I was there, her pocketbook was in her bedroom. And if she left the house, I left the house with her, you know, and it isn't like that anymore. Right. So, um, it's great. We have the normal <laughs> angst filled, anxiety filled <laughs> <laughs> mother daughter relationship, right? Um, we shop and we brunch and we talk and we banter and there's a little bit of bickering. There's very little bickering. Um, but yeah, I mean, our relationship is great. It's absolutely great. That's amazing. I think that support is extremely important. Thank you. For anyone. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, you had all of the ingredients to heal. And I think that's amazing. I think, I think most people do. I think some, it, it's hard for a lot of people who struggle when they don't have the support, when they feel like they're alone. Uh, what advice do you have for those people? So the fact of the matter is that, yeah, I had support. My mother was definitely behind me. And, um, but there are a lot of people that don't have the support. There are people that have burned so many bridges or, you know, their parents or their family don't believe in addiction. They believe, you know, that it's a, will, a question of willpower or whatever the case may be. And they just don't have the support. Here's the thing. I know what I would have gotten if I kept drinking and using. I had no idea what I was going to get if I stopped. So why not just stop? Even mm. if it's just for an hour, I'm not telling you to stop drinking for 10 years. If you told me I couldn't drink for 10 years, I would not be here. <laughs> Someone told me, just don't drink for an hour and then try it again for another hour and another hour. 
were there days that I wanted to drink? Yeah, they were few and far between because I had relapsed. So remember, my son was born on my sober date. My son is 22. I only have, not only, my son is 22. I have 17 years sober, 18 in October. So I relapsed so many times that I was just like, oh, Andrea, please, enough. Really? Like enough. <laughs> Eat a cookie, have the cake, go to Lord and Taylor, go do some, do something different, right? Like after a while, you know that the drink is not going to fix it. You know that the drug is not going to fix it. But even without the support, just give yourself a break. Give yourself a damn break. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm going to get if I drink. I know what I'm going to get if I use. I have no idea what I'm going to get if I don't. I mean, if you would have told me that my son is graduating college, oh my gosh, my son is graduating <laughs> college, right? So it's April 28th and he has two more weeks of full-time class. And then, you know, then he'll walk on June 4th because, you know, we're still living in a pandemic. So he doesn't graduate (laughs) until June, but I have paid outside of his freshman year of college, which my mother lovingly, 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 um, co-signed a loan for him. When my son transferred, I have paid for his sophomore year, junior year, and senior year of college. I used to sleep on the A train. Like, are you kidding me right now? My son texts me. He texts me the other day. Hi, mom. Hi, Elijah. I'm in Tennessee. (laughs) Really? What are you doing in Tennessee? I'm here (laughs) on business, he says, because my son, five classes, full time, 40 hour job, brand new car. And all I pay for is his tuition. He covers his entire life. Not because he has to. I said, Elijah, I wish you wouldn't work so much. Yeah, mom, but that's what men do. I said, I understand that. I said, but you're in your 20s. I said, let me do this. Let me do that. I said, because when you're a grown up, when you're fully grown, that's that's it, right? There's no going back. And he says, no, mom, I'd rather do it now than this way when I have to do it. It'll just come naturally. What am I going to say? Am I going to, what do you say to that? (laughs) You know? So I just say, okay. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. You have so much to be proud of. So much, so much to celebrate. I didn't, Um, I'm, did I lose you? Nope. I'm here. Okay. I didn't know that that was going to happen, but I knew what would have happened if I would have kept drinking and if I would have kept using and if I would have. So imagine if I got sober, but I didn't deal with the sexual trauma because there's that too, right? Yeah. I actually had a client that said to me, I don't want to work with you anymore. And I said, uh, okay. (laughs) I said, can I ask why? And she says, you know what? I'm as free as I'd like to be. I said, I'm sorry. She said, I don't desire to dig any deeper into why I did certain things. And her story was horrific, Mm. horrific. 
And she said, I just, she says, I'm as well and as free as I'd like to be. And my life is good. And I said to her, you know what? Works for me. See, I want to be so free that I'm practically floating. Because ever since I was a little girl, I used to, I used to dream, or should I say have nightmares? I used to dream that something was chasing me. Chasing me, chasing me, chasing me all through the neighborhood, all through these buildings, a maze of buildings. And I would somehow or another get to the roof of these buildings and I would run as fast as I could, not making this up. I would run as fast as I could and I would pump my arms and I would begin to fly. And that's how I got away from whatever was chasing me. Today and for the past 10, 15 years, I have a dream very similar to that, but nothing is chasing me. I'm outside. It's as it's the most clear night you could imagine. And I'm flying. And that is me healed, free, mm. and sober. Amazing. And every time I work with someone, every time I do a podcast, every time I do a TV show, every time I do a radio show, every time, every time, every time, I get a little freer. Because every time you tell your story, every time you right? Every time you give name to the boogeyman, they're not the boogeyman anymore. They're just some sick man, teenager, boy, woman, right? Because women sexually assault also Mm -hmm. that hurt us. Just a person. And when we make them a person, when we give them a name, when we call them Tom, when we call them Steve, when we call them Dave, when we call them Mary, when we call them Alice, they become right-sized. And when they become right-sized, I can take them on. But when they're this huge monster that lurks in the closet or under the bed or in an alleyway or in a bar, I can't handle that. But I can handle Steve and I can (laughs) handle Tom and I can handle Mary. But we have to get there. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's great, you know, what you brought up earlier about going into a rehab facility or detox facility and they couldn't handle your trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know exactly when that was, but I know at least the facility that I went to, they treat all addiction as Mm -hmm. if someone they've experienced trauma. Right. Um, And so I feel like now... And I think that's what's wonderful that you do with your coaching, um, with your coaching business, um, Get Your Life Back with Andrea Mack, is that you tackle both. You, you tackle yes. both. It's not about, it's not like, oh, I'm a drug addict because, you know, someone, I, that's just in my personality. Mm-mm. There's something there. There's a reason why you're medicating. There's a reason why you're numbing yourself. And I think that is absolutely what we need to tackle. And I love that you're doing it with your business. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think, not I think, the laws need to catch up because there's a statute of limitations Mm -hmm. on bringing charges against someone that has sexually assaulted you. 
And what happens if you don't remember for 10 years? Right. Because that's and it happened, what happened 10 years ago. Or what happens if you don't get well for five years and it happened 12 years ago? Are you telling me that it didn't happen because I can't bring a suit against? Because I, no, the laws need to catch up. Just like with the cyberbullying, the laws had to catch up. The laws have to catch up. We're doing a disservice to the people like you and myself that want to take it to the next level. I have no desire to, my next level is helping and healing each and every person. I have no desire to bring suit or go public or, or any of that, but the laws have to catch up because sometimes part of healing is getting damages Mm -hmm. sometimes. Right. Yeah. Like you said, there is, there's a point that you were homeless. There are people who, Mm -hmm. who are struggling, who are still homeless and who Mm -hmm. have reported, um, you know, so yes, that it's not about, Oh, I'm taking money. No, their life was destroyed, destroyed and and, and they need to get it back. And it, and it's not free to get no, your it isn't. Back. And the money costs a lot, right? The money won't make it. The money won't make it to where it didn't happen, but mm-hmm. it'll help you. Yep. It'll help treatment. Going into residential treatment is not cheap. A lot of, a money. Lot yes. of money. I used to work at a facility. It was a thousand dollars a day, yeah. a day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy. Really and there are is. all these people who really would love the help, but they just don't have the means. So, no. yes, I, I, I agree with you there. So thank you so much for no joining worries. me. I really love our conversation. Me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That was Life Coach Andrea Mack with Get Your Life Back with Andrea Mack. For more on Andrea, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's letter A, tstpodcast.com. You can also click on that fortune cookie right there, and that will direct you to her website, www.andrea-mack.com. Andrea also contributed to February's issue of Authentic Insider, which, by the way, May's issue is out now. You can always find that on my website, tstpodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. Join me next week on Fireside Chat when producer and director John Bernardo joins me to discuss the film Peloton of One, which follows the journey of one man who was sexually abused by a Catholic priest. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.